Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater, and I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial and human needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real life business issues of the day. So I'm just going to jump right in with a quote. We don't know who actually said this quote, but we love it. Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. I love that quote. Now, I'm really excited about today's show. We have a true legend in the field. Now, the last person I called a legend is my friend Larry King. And Larry said to me, he said, he called me legendary, which usually means I'm about to die. And legend means you're in your 60s. So (laughs) that's apparently so. Ted Rubin is truly a legend in this field that's really still in the early days, social media marketing. Ted's one of the world's top social media influencers and speakers and authors and provocateur. I love that word. And we'll get to his socks later, I promise. I'm not going to give you his whole bio. You can look it up. It'll be in the show notes. But I first got to know Ted about Eh, maybe 10 years ago, through a mutual friend and another incredible marketing consultant, Kristen Andre, who will, will be a future guest on this show from Atlanta, who networked us together. And we both know Gary Vaynerchuk very well. So this was right after he started using and evangelizing the term ROR, return on relationship. Hashtag R, little on, big R. It's a concept that he believes and I couldn't agree more, and it's something that I've been living my entire life. I just didn't have a name for it. I'm so glad Ted named it. Um, it's the cornerstone for building and engaging multi-million member databases as a community, many of whom will become vocal advocates of whatever your brand is, whatever your business is. Ted has quite a resume, as I said, being an equity partner of Collective Bias, etc. And again, you can look more in the show notes. He's also one of the most followed CMOs on Twitter, one of Forbes' top 40 social media power influencers. And I would imagine next to our mutual friend, Gary Vaynerchuk is number two on the lead tail list of top 25 people most mentioned by digital marketers. I'm guessing Gary's number one, uh, but you know, I tr- don't know. Truth be told, I don't know. I, that can't... Yeah, well, Gary would tell you he's number one, but I'm, I'm well, not sure. <laughs> Gary probably is number one. And if he's not listed as number one, he probably should be. So. Yeah. Well, as I said earlier, Return on Relationships was the name of his 2013 New York Times bestseller is the basis of his philosophy. And I'm going to quote you here because I know this is your quote. Relationships are like muscle tissue. The more they are engaged, the stronger and more valuable they become. A network gives you reach, but a community gives you power. So finally, let's turn up the power and welcome Ted Rubin to Financially Speaking. Good to see you, man. Well, thanks, Mitch. You know, you said so many things. I, I, I kept wanting to jump yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but I wanted to also let you go. Yeah. You know. I'm a radio guy, so I just love to talk. I, you know, I just intro it. Well, you know, I'm here you, to listen, and that's what's why You opened up with a quote that's on a lot of my profiles, and I always try very hard. Sometimes the platforms pull it down, but to put it in quotes, because nobody's really sure who created that quote about Mm -hmm. life. But it's a quote that is really how I live because I've learned I'm 61 years old so I don't certainly don't consider myself legendary but if that's part of being 60 mm-hmm. well in, legend, in the 60s, legend 60 legend. so uh, I am I am <laughs> in my 60s but life is always a challenge and the term that I do use all the time and you I know you've seen the bracelet no mm-hmm. let up is that there's no let up in life and if you wait for that let up if you wait for the storm to pass then you're never going to get to live life and I've had 
a lot of challenges in my life, uh, some minor, some much more significant. And I've just learned, and for a long time as a young person, I kept saying, well, I'll wait till next month or I'll wait till next year or let me wait till I get through this. And then I realized that if you wait to live until everything is perfect, you're probably never going to live. So I discovered that quote and I just embraced it. And, and I embraced a lot of things. I mean, I know you've seen me talk about be good to people. That's a, a woman named Chris Wittenberg who started that. I love embracing other people's things and making them, when I say making them my own, I don't mean owning them. Mm -hmm. but making them part of what I do and part right. of my brand. Exactly. And that quote just resonates with me so much. And to me, it really has a lot to do with everything I talk about, return on relationship, this dad won't quit, being good to people, no let up, because it's all doing it now and not waiting for everything to be perfect. Because all of us, even if things are perfect or you think they are in your life, there's someone around you, whether it's your family, a friend, or somebody that's going to have a challenge, a business. Mm -hmm. And then when you talk about return on relationship, for me, it's not just about building a business it's about building your life return relationship is about everything life we is do. relationships life is relationships I, mean, well, I, I, I hope it is I go back because I think it's the best way I mean this is just a silly little story but when I, when I was at summer camp in the Berkshires Camp Winnedu you probably as a Cold Spring Harbor guy probably knew it but there was a guy that was my bunkmate and I was seven years old actually I wasn't even seven wow who had the same exact name as me what are the odds Mitch Slater <laughs> And this particular Mitch Slater grew up to be a big concert promoter and wound up promoting with Ron Delsner. It was Delsner Slater Productions for many years. He just did extremely well in that area. And then when I had my radio show in the 90s, I actually interviewed him. We had a lot of fun. But I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. and Clearly, I've, I've, I know yeah, that. You know that. And I've networked myself into that world over the last 10 years through a variety of different things. But one of the biggest things that happened was one day I met John Landau, who's kind of the guy that discovered Bruce and, and and is his producer, and there's no Bruce Springsteen without John Landau. And, and I was introduced to him, Mitch Slater, and he gave me this big hug and just talked about the old days. And you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like debating, okay, well, when do I tell him I'm the other Mitch Slater? <laughs> so I told him the story right. instead. I told him the story, which he thought was really funny. It was just a relationship from 1966 that turned out to help me in one of my big passions in life. Right. So you just never know where things are. And everybody has a journey. Nobody wakes up one morning and has a resume like yours. I know like my partner at work, Anne, who also went to Cornell, that's kind of where it started. So maybe take us down your own little yellow brick road and what the wizard taught or gave you. Oh boy, that's a long road. Sure. Uh, we could have a two hour show if yeah, you well, want to do that. But you know, notes. for me, I, I went to Cornell and I was just concerned with, I wanted to make money. And to me at that time, the way to do it was to go into the investment business, and I did. And I had a lot of years there, and I made a lot of money as a young person, and then I got totally burnt out. It's like a, the mouse and the wheel, mm -hmm. because no matter how much you make, you want more. Mm -hmm. Look, it is good to set goals and reach for them and then set a new goal when you're in life. But right. what ends up happening with a lot of people is that you're never satisfied because it just always becomes something new. And I got burnt out, kind of left that field, started building sales teams because that was my strength in the investment business. I was not the guy that investigated the companies. I was always a relationship guy. Right. I built the relationships. I met Mitch Slater, who mm -hmm. said he had a great company. I introduced him to the people that would do that analysis. I would build a relationship with him so he would then say, I want to work with these guys because we weren't always necessarily the best. Sales was a big thing for me because I was a relationship seller. And I was the guy in the office that the manager always yelled at that I didn't make enough calls because I would talk too long to people. But I managed to produce, either be one of the top or outproduce most of the guys in the office with 
20, 30% of the phone calls because I built relationships and I got a lot deeper into the people and I became friends with them. And I remember being told, you're not here to go to weddings. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, you go to the weddings, you really become friends. Exactly. And people look at you a different mm -hmm. way and then they introduce you to more people. So that's kind of where I got my start. Getting out there. Getting out there. Right. It was what I knew, so I started building sales teams for different companies and kind of got bored with that. The internet all of a sudden came out, and a guy, one of the guys I was training, would always leave the office and run home. I'm like, what are you doing every day? Like, why are you working later? You can mm -hmm. make more money. He goes, oh, I'm building computers. I'm like, what do you mean you're building computers? He goes, well, they cost a lot of money, so I just put them together. I get circuit boards, and, and I'm like, really? Could you build me one? And he said, you, you got to get online. And what, what's online? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was probably 96, right, maybe right. 95. Oh, earlier. Probably. And he built a computer for me, mm -hmm. and he taught me how to get online with AOL. Mm -hmm. uh, remember that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. And I just realized this is going to be huge. This is yeah. what I want to do. I was looking for something new. I was bored with what I was doing. And I started staying up late night when my kids went to mm -hmm. sleep and my ex went to sleep. My kids were little then. Right. And I was researching. I was looking for companies to apply to. And I came across an article that was an interview with Seth Godin. And it was when he owned the company. He had founded the company called Yo-Yodyne, right. which was before he did, had not written Permission Marketing no, yet. No, no. He had written a few books with Jay Levinson about sales and connecting with people, mm -hmm. but he didn't have any real bestsellers. Right. And the article was just incredible. He was talking about how to build relationships and what you're doing with marketing and how things are changing. And at the end of it, the interviewer asked him if he had any job openings. Like, wow, this sounds like a cool company. He goes, well, I don't have any specific openings. But number one, I'll always hire somebody smart because that's how I'm building my company. And number two is I desperately need people that can sell anything because no one's ever sold this before. Ding, ding, ding. The bell went off. I wrote a letter. Yes, a letter that I typed mm -hmm. out. Yep. And I said, I'm your guy. I said, I'm smart, and I can sell anything. And I remember my ex, who was my wife at the time, saying, why the hell are you applying to a company that has no job openings? I said, because he says he hires smart people, and these people can sell everything. She goes, you're not that smart. Which, you know, of course, that's, you know. And um, two weeks later, I got a, a call. And I remember my ex calling me up and saying, oh, my God, those guys called. And you got to call them back. Yeah. And I did. And I flew up to New York. And Seth ended up hiring me. And I have some great stories from what sure, happened there. But again, I'm sure we want to move along. Mm -hmm. And that was just my start into digital. And, and I got involved in digital when e-commerce was a catalog online. And media was taking a magazine and just printing the pages on a website. And it gave me a view into how this whole thing developed. And I just, look, I got lucky. I ended up with a guy who was brilliant. Right. My family stayed in Florida. My daughter was mm -hmm. in preschool, and we had mm -hmm. to sell the house. And, and I made the mistake of moving in with my in-laws. Don't ever. If you're young, <laughs> if you're out there, don't ever move in with your in-laws, especially if they're like the Costanzas and if you're a Seinfeld <laughs> fan, because all they did was yell at each other. But right. I'm not a big believer in God, but I believe things happen for a reason. Right. The reason for this was that I wasn't an early riser, but it made me get the hell out of that house before they woke up in the morning at 5.30. And I was the first one in the year nine office every morning between 6 and 6.30, and Seth's an early riser. And he was holding forth on all his ideas, and I got to be there mm. when he penned the first article called Permission Marketing for Fast Company that ended up becoming his bestseller. Right. And I was with greatness. I was in the presence of greatness. Right. And I just listened. And a lot of my ideas, I was always a relationship builder. It's what I did, but my ideas about return on relationship and where that comes in, a lot of it first formulated listening to Seth talk about permission marketing and how ideas spread. And 
Yahoo ended up taking us over. I had their name behind us for a while after a year of struggling to get in front of anybody. I went from being a sales guy who we had to throw a little extra money to to get there mm -hmm. so I could support my family to running the sales there and running the sales team and then doing the same for Yahoo and then going on from there to Bottle Rocket, which was a right. game maker and then mm -hmm. 800 Flowers where they had a big name and I was able to get into doors that I couldn't get into before. And I just, I learned all this stuff from the ground up. Yeah. And when I left 800 Flowers, every job I went to that I turned down, they offered me consulting. It was Web 1.0. Right. It was when every company was getting financed with money. Mm -hmm. And everybody wanted to talk to everybody else. Right. So I just got a very good early education in what this was. And remember, you might think that email was social marketing. I mean, because it was the first way that you could really communicate with people without mm -hmm. a conference call. Right. I like to say the Pony Express was early social media. Sure. And email allowed us to do a lot of things that we're doing now just without the platform part of it. And it happened quicker. You know, I had a conversation recently on the show with a woman who had written a piece about all the changes in technology over the years. And we're talking about the telephone, just the basic <laughs> telephone. And, you know, it took 35 years until more than 50% of the country had telephones. But think about cell phones. Things are, <laughs> look, it's just like now. Change Things is happening. Rapid. Change is happening rapid. Right. Evolution is exponential. Right. So I went from there. I ended up at Angel Flowers. I went from there to consulting and, and being able to sit in the room with all these people thinking of all these new technologies, the first social platforms, Friendster, things mm. like that, then MySpace. And I won't go through everything I went to, but the culmination of that was I ended up at a company called Elf Cosmetics. And this was 2008. They were a startup direct-to-consumer brand before there was a lot of direct-to-consumer. They were a dollar cosmetics brand that had opened up thinking they were Garmento people. It was a young son who recognized very quickly after he got married at a young age how expensive cosmetics was. Came up with this idea. They thought they would sell it in stores. They didn't understand the slotting spaces, and it was very different than fashion. And they started selling direct. And they had about $5 million in sales. They had no marketing budget. They were building their brand strictly traditional words of mouth and they hit a wall and someone said we know this guy and he's got all these ideas and he's a sales guy but he's a marketing guy you need a marketing guy that's a sales guy because every dollar counted right and they hired me and I got the opportunity to build one of the first social networks for a brand because everybody else was afraid of doing it. Sure. I mean, I had friends at the time, Marissa Thalberg, mm -hmm. who's now the CMO or the chief customer officer at right. Taco Bell, was at Estee Lauder, you know, just writing things in their newsletter about how they should talk about this thing social. And some of the first things I read and were influenced by were things that she wrote, a friend that worked there, I won't release her name, mm -hmm. but gave me some of their like internal newsletters. And I just started jumping out and doing all this stuff at Elf Cosmetics. And we grew the brand from $5 million to $50 million in two years. And I, at the time, I became good friends with Jeffrey Hazlett, who was at Kodak, right. and Barry Judge, who was at Best Buy. And they were some of the CMOs that were doing early things, at brands that were challenged. They were able to do stuff that they might not have otherwise been able to do. But they had legal teams. And half the time, we would brainstorm. And at the end of the brainstorming session, they'd say, okay, Ted, you try it. So I got the opportunity to brainstorm with these brilliant guys. And then I went, because we had no legal team, we had two founders that just said to me, if it don't cost us money, 
go for it. Right. And I'm like, well, the only money it'll cost us is some $10 interns to help me right. write the things and spread the things and print the things. And we built the first website that aggregated content that was being published by customers. It was called askelf.com. Mm -hmm. And we set it up as a separate URL because we really weren't sure what was going to go there and they just wanted to be careful. So right. instead of it coming to our website, we set up a separate one. And the day we opened it, the flood was enormous. We had 10 million hits. Right. Every woman in America wanted to publish that they just got their elf and oh my god right. and it was a for me it was the it was the introduction into that user generated content blows away anything created by brands a little pitch i just joined the advisory board of a company called spaceback they have developed technology that allows you to take social posts by yourself or your customers and then reuse them as printed banner ads or display ads, but it still maintains the direct connection to the post. So it updates, it shows the comments, it shows the likes, it shows everything. And this is what we were doing at Elf back right. in the early days where we were realizing that what our users were creating was much more influential than the ads we were writing. And by the way, we didn't have money to buy ads, so this was our advertising. And we grew the brand with social media. Listen, the brands that get it early have been the winners, and they've held on. And I mean, I remember maybe day one, day two of Twitter, and I'm, I'm an early adopter of just about everything possible from social media to the internet in the last 20 years. And I decided to test it out. I went online. I was thinking, all right, what products do I really love? And, you know, I don't see a movie without Raisinets, all right? So it's just been that way since six years old. I know you're a vegan. It's probably not on the diet, but that's my treat. So I went on Twitter and I wrote Raisinets. I said, you've been there my whole life. I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you. I got immediately a direct message. What's your address? It took me almost a year to go through what they sent me. I mean, they sent me this huge box of dark chocolate and milk chocolate raisinets. That's when I realized, wow. And this what, is powerful. I'd like to say, when people talk about the influencer business, I say everyone influences somebody. Right. And your most valuable influencers are your customers and your employees. Your customers, because if you're a consumer brand, you've probably got millions of them, and a lot of them really do love you. And when you recognize them, even in a little way, even by liking a post they sent, you'd be surprised. Everyone goes, oh, who cares if someone likes a post? Yet mom in Oklahoma goes freaking crazy. Right. And she loves when you like her post. She goes, oh, my God, Raisinets, like yes, my post. Yes, exactly. You know, and then she starts telling all her friends, and right. then they start posting. Right. And then your employees... Hopefully they love your company, and if they do, they have a real insight into who it is. And think about how, if you empower them to build their networks and share your content and love your brand, what's happening there? And I was fortunate enough to be able to do this at an early time and see the results. And what's amazing to me is with what we accomplished back then, how it hasn't taken hold more no. between now and then. Because everyone's looking for the easy way to do things. Right. And how do we scale stuff rather than how do we empower people? Mm -hmm. So talk about brands for a little bit. What's working today and what's not working? What are they doing wrong? What are they doing right? And where do you see that going? Unfortunately, I see it going towards ease of use for the brands, not ease of use for the customers. In mm -hmm. other words, programmatic is growing at leaps and bounds. Even with all the reports about all the fraud in programmatic and the mistargeting in programmatic, and I like to get away from the word targeting. I'm looking to move us to the word matchmaking. No one wants to be a target, but everyone wants a good match. Mm -hmm. But what I see is that programmatic could be a boon if it was more controlled by humans. I like to say that marketing will truly win when humans control the machines and the machines don't control the humans. And what's happening with a lot of these technologies is 
everyone's looking to make it easier. How do we scale our media buying? How do we get something done quicker? How do we pinpoint the people we want without really doing all the hard work of talking to them and hearing what they're saying by just using keywords or other things? Mm -hmm. So I think Unfortunately, we're still going in that direction. Shameless plug, I'm going to say something about Spaceback. What I love is that they're bringing some of the social to some of that programmatic. Right. So I can't tell you that I don't love programmatic, but what they're trying to do is bring things that are actually contextual and people care about there. And the same thing with Photify, who's a company, as you know, I'm their CMO, I'm on their mm -hmm. board. We're trying to allow employees to create content about things they're seeing right at the front line, like whether it's a waitress in a restaurant or it's a direct seller for a direct selling company who really know what's happening. To really refine your question a little bit, what I'd like to see happening is just companies putting a little bit more of the hard work in, listening to their consumers, getting involved in conversations with them. Yes, it's hard to scale, but if you allow your employees to do it and you empower them to do it, even on a small scale, I like to say that when I work with a marketing team, every single person on the team has to go to the social feeds of our customers. Pick out 10 a day and just go and see what they're talking about. What's important to them? Are they talking about politics? Are they talking about finance? Are they worried about where the market's going? Mm -hmm. You might think that has nothing to do with your brand, but it's what your consumer is interested in right. and the way you're going to be able to emotionally touch them with something. It doesn't mean you're going to write a financial ad, but it means you know what's happening in the industry and the, mm -hmm. the way people are thinking. So I think brands are right now still steering towards ease of use, towards making it easier. I mean, look at influencer marketing. Everything is about how can we programmatically buy influencers. Right. Who has a platform where we can just check a box and we find the perfect person to advertise a product? Instead of being willing to build a relationship with that person, why do all these fails happen? Because Mitch Slater wasn't the guy. Because, yeah, you read the keywords in his posts, but maybe you should have talked to him and found out that he loves Bruce Springsteen, mm -hmm. but he hates Billy Joel. Right. So why is he a Billy Joel influencer? Just because he's got a group of followers that like music that's current doesn't mean that his followers care about or he cares about right. what you're hiring him for. It could have taken a two-second conversation to figure that out or bothered looking at his social posts. I'll quote Gary on this one because I love this quote. I mean, in an age of Jetsons, sometimes you got to go Flintstone. That's just, I think, that's a great the, quote. That's, yeah, it's, I love just, that. it's just a great quote. You still have to go old school, no matter what. You know, you have all this technology and you can have Rosie the Robot and everything out there, but unless you actually pick up the phone face-to-face, -face, do things that... Again, humans. <laughs> you gotta have to humans. We are humans. We're not going to let the robots take over. We are. We have yeah. to not. You write a lot of great blogs, and I just wanted to cover one or two things because I thought they're really interesting. And why everything is not Amazon's fault when it comes to retailers. Let's well, talk about that a little bit. You know, retailers want to blame Amazon for everything. Right. Like, they're taking it over. And it, look, the same thing was said about Walmart, you know, mm -hmm. in the retail store. Right. Every small business was failing because of Walmart. Right. For me... I don't understand why brands don't look at their competitors and want to do what they're doing instead of thinking that's copying. Why wouldn't you want to copy somebody that's doing something well? I mean, I don't know about you, but I love Amazon. I love Amazon because they make my life easy. My business partner and I say, simplicity is the new EDLP. EDLP, for those not in the retail business, is everyday low pricing. Walmart made that famous. That's right. Sam Walton's line. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe not his line, but came from his company. Sure. And I like to say that and John likes to say that simplicity is the new EDLP because simplicity saves us time, makes it easy. We're all time-pressed. Things have changed. We all can do things. We all have these phones at our fingertips. We can be looking up things. We can be answering our kids' questions. We don't have to wait to get home to look at Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. <laughs> Pull out the world book. <laughs> no, but more importantly, what I've discovered over the last few years is that everybody's learned to value their time. There was a time. 
10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, where only the higher economic stratas really knew how to value their time because we could be making money around the clock because if you're in the finance business, you knew that anytime you made more calls or you went out and reached more people, when you couldn't call New York anymore, you could call California, you could go to the overseas markets. What's happened now with the likes of Uber and Lyft, and I had a guy come to my house to put together a bed for Amazon. He's a handyman that now gets his business off of an app. You can work all the time. So you've learned that if it takes me two hours to go to Walmart, or if I have it delivered, it might cost me $10 more. But in that same two hours, I can make $30 because I can deliver products for somebody or I can drive somebody somewhere or I can do something else that people who are even hourly employees who you would think could value their time, but they can't because they can only work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week and then it's cut off. Now they can work around the clock. So they don't care as much about the cheapest price. They know that they can value their time. So it used to be like, I'm not gonna buy from Amazon or have it delivered because it costs a couple of dollars more. Well, now that doesn't matter because I can earn more money in that time that I would have used just going to the store when before I didn't care. I think that too many companies blame Amazon instead of trying to figure out how do we compete with them? The Dicks of the world, the Macy's of the world, the JCPenney's of the world, oh my God, they lament. Oh, Amazon is, they have advantages we don't have. Well. Why don't you have those advantages? Why don't you figure that out? Why do you walk into a Dick's now and the employees just could not care less? Excuse me, do you have this sneaker? No, they walk away. They don't offer you something else. I've even gone so far as to say, well, can I get it from another store? Um, The other store is over there. You can go check it out. Well, why can't you check it out for me? I don't have the time to do that. They are expediting their own demise by not investing in what they need to do to be more like that company or saying, maybe we need to be acquired by somebody else that can help us do that. It's right. why I think Amazon's going to buy a, a bunch more retailers. Oh, I mean, keep, keep how soon it. is it until they buy Kohl's? It's, I mean, it's come the on. Jurassic period for many of these brands. So two last things I wanted to jump on. So let's say you work with a new business. What are two or three themes that you're going to go to them right now that you said in 2019, you better jump on this right now or you're not surviving the next couple of years. A lot of it depends on the business, but for any business, you need to start thinking of your employees well beyond what their job description is. You need to be empowering them to build their personal brands. That doesn't mean making them. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people that don't want to build their personal brands. That God bless. I would have a different conversation with them. But as far as the company goes, I would say venture guess that most companies have people that are not using social media as much because they're afraid. Some of them aren't using because they don't like it, but a lot of them are not using because they're worried about repercussions from their company. They're worried about saying the wrong thing. They're worried about they don't know how. I would be training them. I would be letting them know that there's after work classes that they can come to for free or that the company will pay for to help them learn how to use Instagram, how to use LinkedIn, how to use Twitter, or how to use the platform of their choice or how to figure out what is the platform of their choice. A lot of people are clueless about that. What's best for me? What can I do? So that's probably the first thing I would do. I would also be talking to them about allowing their employees to create content for their brands allowing them to give back behind-the-scenes views. Again, now we're depending on the company. Obviously, that's not going to happen at UBS, but that should certainly be happening at any retailer, at any franchisee, at any restaurant business, at any hospitality business. Why aren't the employees creating great content? Why aren't the employees taking pictures of people and saying, hey, can we share this? Or taking pictures of themselves, which they can give permission to share. IMC probably 40 to 50 marketing events a year for a company called Brand Innovators. The audience is brand marketers from Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and then there were vendors and sponsors there for, who are creating brands. And 
almost down to the last one, their biggest challenge is how do we create enough content? How do we keep up with this necessity to get people's attention, to have them read something that means something to them, to add value to their lives? Because it costs a fortune. Well, why not empower your employees to help you with that? Why not let them take photos? Why not give them an app that gives them your logo and your brand that allows them or gives them frames that allows them to do that with a way that you'd be happy with it? Why not stop worrying about perfect content and instead create content that people really care about? So that's probably the talk I'd have. And then sure. I talk to them about engaging and talking to people and building relationships and the power of relationships. You know, a return relationship, simply put, is the value perceived by a personal brand due to building a relationship. ROI is simple dollars and cents. But ROR, return on relationship, or the hashtag I use, and you said it so perfectly, capital R, small O-N, uh, large R, and there's a whole marketing story behind that, which if you have a moment, I'd like to go into. Sure, tell us. I think it's very relevant. Yeah. But this is what people get from loyalty, from recommendations, from sharing. That's the value you get. So the funny story from return on relationship was that everyone always says to me, why don't you use the hashtag ROR? Now, back in 2009, I did use the hashtag ROR. And within a few weeks, I get reached out to by the Ruby on Rails people. Now, if you don't know what Ruby on Rails is, it's, it's a development platform or language that a lot of hackers use. This guy reached out to me and said, you're hijacking our hashtag. It's Ruby on Rails. And I'm like, really? I didn't know you could own a hashtag. They're like, well, we own this, and you tweet a lot. And it's really annoying us, and we want you to stop. And, well, I have two policies in life. Sure. One of them, you know, is be good to people. Right. And, you know, if someone's asking me legitimately that I'm doing something that's infringing on what they're doing, even though they might not have a legal right on it, I'm inclined to try to find something else. And then the other policy is don't mess with a hacker. Don't mess with a guy that can bake into your bank account because it's yeah. probably a really bad idea. Smart. Yeah. So I said, guys, ROR is yours. Mm -hmm. And I made a classic marketing error. And I tell this to brands all the time, don't do what you think. See what your audience thinks. W ask them. But I didn't do that. I, mean, I just said, okay, this makes sense. Our return on our relationship. Everyone's going to understand that. Well, for about three years, everyone wanted to know who Ron R was. And why isn't it Ted R yeah. since your name is Ted? Right. And, and by the time I was paying enough attention, because like everybody else, I was busy. I was building Elf Cosmetics. I was running in 20 different versions. I would see some of the comments, but I'd kind of ignore them. I finally like realized, oh my God, like what a like classic Mark. Like here I, I am I'm telling- I'm so glad you brought it up because it's a question I've wanted to ask you well, for 10 he, years. Here I, but I, I, I didn't want to be the guy. <laughs> here I am telling everybody else how to properly yeah. do marketing. Right. And I made the mistake myself. Mm -hmm. and, and people didn't call me out sooner enough they, they just made fun of the thing and so then I did go to my audience and I said okay should I change it and I got a resounding no they said first of all it's a great story so that's one reason alone not to change it and they said second of all you've already gotten traction and then when people ask it gives you the opportunity to tell the story and everything else so <laughs> it just shows you that even when you know and you do something every day you can still make the same mistakes by not listening to people and by not I mean right away when someone said that I should have said why are you saying that but I didn't. Right. That was my mistake. Right. You were going at warp speed. and So know. what I've done now is I've tried to take something that was a mistake and turn it into a positive. Oh. Turn negatives into positives. So what are you working on now? 
I'm writing a book with my business partner. Actually, my business partner is really writing the book. It's called Retail Relevancy. John is a retail geek. John founded Collective Bias. Thank God, dragged me into it, kicking and screaming, and and got me in a position where I became an equity partner. The company was acquired in 2010, and that was a a big thing for us. We left the company in 2013, but we remained shareholders, and we supported them in every way we could, which I tell everybody, if you leave a company and you have equity, you shouldn't even have to sign a non-compete. Because why would you compete with a company that's going to be your future? And fortunately, it became a big part of our future. But John's a retail geek, and Collective Bias helped through Walmart and a lot of other brands helped companies sell more product at Walmart by creating content at scale in a storytelling format using bloggers. Now, John joined a company about a year and a half ago called uh, Photify. He had been on their board for a while. He's CEO now, and Photify helps companies create branded content, beautiful branded content in under 30 seconds with a photo app and now a video app that allows you to add logos and content and empower your employees to share content that is properly branded. Used on Instagram. Uh, It's used on Instagram, it's used on Facebook, it's used anywhere. We have 10 million downloads. Mm -hmm. We have 500,000 active consumer users. Now we're moving it into the enterprise space. The low-hanging fruit was direct sellers who already have most of their sellers creating content, so why not empower them to do it better? We're trying to get retailers and franchise businesses to understand the power of this and get beyond their HR thinking, oh my God, you know, employees creating content and their fear of, oh, it won't be perfect content. But my take has always been everyone influences someone and nobody creates content better than the people who share it with their friends. That's where we really get influence from. There's, There's maybe a handful of people that can actually move the needle for sales as a true influencer in this country. Right. But there are millions of people that influence their friends and influence their relatives and influence their colleagues every single day. And what we're trying to do is empower them. That's great. That's great. That's a, that's a big need. Before I let you go, we mentioned the socks and uh, <laughs> I don't see as much. Let's take a look at what you got today. Ooh, those I'm are really my nice. Return on relationships. Yeah. I'm wearing my return on relationships socks today that were made for me by a client. Oh. So how did, how did the whole sock thing start? So that is another good marketing story. Exactly. So um, For I those lo- of you that don't know, Ted is, is very well known out there as someone who is very bright, colorful socks, and it's something you always you see in your social media, and it's something that's always and, talked about. And I post them all the time, and right. now I post them whenever I fly, and I try to use them for storytelling purposes, and I haven't bought a pair of socks in 10 years. They're sent to me by sock company, by friends, by right. people I meet, by senior executives, of C-level executives of companies show up at events and hand me a pair of socks. But it actually is a good story, and it's something I use a lot. I love funky socks, as does my business partner. So when I got to collect a bias, I started wearing them even more because instead of having somebody senior to you saying, oh my God, those things again today, I had a guy who was competing with me. And I would wear them on stage. And in 2009, a blogger named Sandy Jenny, name is Sandy Jenny, her handle is Organizer Sandy, took a picture of me on stage at a blogger conference. And Type A conference run by Kelby, uh, what's Kelby's last name? I'm forgetting it right now, but anybody who knows blogging will know Kelby. Kelby Carr. And I was on stage and she took all these pictures and I come off stage and I'm sitting kind of, I give up everything when I'm on stage. Like I'm exhausted after an hour presentation and I'm sitting with my feet up on the chair and my socks are showing. And she comes over, she goes, can I take a picture of your socks? And I said, sure. And she takes a picture of me in the socks and she posts it. And next thing you know, I'm getting like tweet after tweet from bloggers going, oh my God, I love your socks. I saw you on stage. That's amazing. But where do you buy them? And the next day I'm at the conference and there were tweets. What's, what socks are Ted wearing today? So I posted them again. 
Next day, the same thing. So it goes on for about three or four days. And I leave the conference. And, and by the way, this goes to, I tell people, you don't have to brainstorm about how can I do something to create attention. Socks. You We're know, talking socks. Use things in your daily life. Exactly. Use things that are actually you because then you don't have to work hard at yep. it. So I leave the conference thinking this thing's over. And every day for the next 10 days, there are tweet after tweet going, what socks is Ted wearing today? So I've spent 32 years in stocks. I got it wrong. It should have been it's socks. socks. So I, I started <laughs> posting them all the time. People started sending them to me and buying them for me. And then, I don't know if you know Sue Zimmerman, but mm-hmm. she, she calls herself Instagram gal. Right. And at some point, actually it was Joel Com said to me, oh, you should make it a sake because it's a, a selfie. Sure. So I hashtag something sake and Sue said, no, make no, it no, no. Ted sake because then you own it and exactly. it's yours. It's, it's so, so she made me this sign. <laughs> right. I have 1,500 Ted sakes posted now over the last 10 years or so and whenever I fly I, I see n- a book I never miss a flight I see a book of I never miss photos. a flight without posting them in front of my laptop with the Be Good to People sticker Right. and then I tell stories around them and sometimes the socks have to do with the stories sometimes they don't but what it's done here's what it's done it's made conversation easy people walk up to me at conferences who have never seen me before who don't know how to open the conversation and go what socks you wear? I've literally been in buildings like UBS here where I walk in the lobby and there's a suited up guy, CEO of a company. Mm-hmm. He'll pull up his pant leg <laughs> and there are three guys next to him like you in their suits going, right. sir, we have a meeting upstairs. He goes, just a minute. I've got to get us Ted Saki with Ted. <laughs> like, because they know that. Or I'm standing at the entrance to a conference and give people things easy that makes it easy for them to converse with you because it's hard to walk up to somebody you don't know who you might see on a stage or you might see writing a book are you so and so but rather you give them something I like your thing or with Gary you know Gary gives them a million things to talk right, about right. and I've done that with other things I'm mean, at my no letter bracelet I have other hashtags and people say to me you know Ted collects hashtags but I don't I don't run through them the way other people do. And I see a lot of young guys, they do it for a month or two and they say it doesn't catch on. I've been doing R&R for 10 years. Right. I've been doing This Dad Won't Quit for five, six years. You know, They become part of my brand. And the socks have just become something where I gotta tell you, people reach out who I, they, they don't follow me, I don't know who they are, and it gives them a way to connect with me. It's an incredible thing. I've, I've had a, a very different experience, but a similar experience in the Springsteen mm-hmm. world. I mean, I, I go to any Springsteen-related event, whether it was in Asbury Park this weekend or a private thing a few weeks ago or, or a concert with 50,000 people, and people come up to me all the time, and they've seen tons of videos that I've done of Bruce over the years. Didn't it start and, with your daughter? Yeah, If I remember correctly, yeah, coming yeah, up on yeah, stage? Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and it's just, you know, one little thing at a time, and, and it, just, it just grew and it grew and it grew, and it's been, it's just the nicest thing for me, and I think probably for you too, is when you can take a passion, something that really means a lot to you, and to me, you know, seeing Bruce Springsteen for 40 years, it's not as much about the man, but it's the music and what it means and the soundtrack of your life and all that other stuff, but when that passion becomes really a part of your life and it gets involved in every little part of your life and you can involve your kids and you make new friends, I've friends all over the world that I've met because of my love of Bruce Springsteen and Steve Van Zandt. I want to make a couple of comments about this sure. here. First of all, look what you just said, 40 years. So people get frustrated that it doesn't happen after a year or it doesn't happen after two years. Right. When you want to develop something that is going to grow to something that can be of value to you, and by the way, that value can just be that you love going to concerts. It doesn't, mm-hmm. value isn't necessarily money. Well, I, just, yeah, no, I love but, sharing. I love no, sharing. What I'm what saying is, yeah. is it takes time. It yeah. takes time. You can't expect these things to happen overnight. No. And then the other thing is your passions don't have to be your business. You know, I listen to some of these people that say only do what you love 
<laughs> Some of us have obligations. We've got kids. We've got things. Right. Maybe we loved it at one point, and now we're in a career we don't love, but we need the income because we got things. We, you right. don't just drop it. Right. But you can create those passions as as other parts of your life. Right. And and to me, that's where a lot of the real value comes in. And I, I love that you've done that. And I think I told when we first met, mm-hmm. and I remember it was a restaurant on Park Avenue. I believe Sarah Beth's Kitchen. Sarah Beth's Kitchen. I think I told you about my first experience yes. with Bruce Springsteen, yes. where I went. I saw him play. He did a warm up. Mm-hmm. And at Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. and a buddy of mine, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, and he said, you have to listen to this guy because right. he's weird, yeah. and you're not going to appreciate him unless you've heard his music before. And right. I think I was the only guy there, and it turned out Bruce told the story later. He refused after that. He would right. never be a warm-up band. You know who he warmed up for? I'm going to guess, because, I. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm I, really glad you're going to tell me this, because okay. I've been trying to figure it out. It might have been Yes. It was It was in some old school band. Um, it might have been Yes. Uh, it, who was it? Yes. I got it right. You got it right. Holy but there was one other band that night. <laughs> Who was that? Mott the Hooper. Oh, you know, now I'm 61. We were so, back you know, together, so actually. It, it and, makes and, sense. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I was never sure. And I always thought it was, it yes, was yes. Because I've I, seen the poster. Because I was not a big concert goer. So mm-hmm. I kind of remember most of the concerts yeah. I went to. And I remember that. I'm going to find you the set list from that night. Well, I'm going to tell you what I love. <laughs> I have his interviews in Newsweek and Time. Right. That came out after we played at the bottom line. 75. Right. August 75. And. In there, he talks about when, how we would never play there, and there maybe was a handful of people mm-hmm. listening. I was one of those people. <laughs> That's a great story. And <laughs> last night, I got to see uh, Springsteen Archives. They opened up, and, and they showed, for the first time, um, it was actually filmed, the bottom line shows. There's was oh, a wow. guy named Barry Rebo, who Bruce has known for years, and he kept in the background, and Bruce would never let him do anything with it. And now we That's have amazing. unbelievable film of those bottom line shows right. in 1975 yeah. and they're great so well listen Ted this has been fun this has been a real treat I know we're going to do this again I know we got a lot more to talk about you are always creating you're on a mission that has destinations we can't even imagine and I admire that I really appreciate more than anything you sharing your wisdom and, well, thank and, you. and that's what people love to hear and I think that's there's more value in that than anything and I will in the show notes you'll see more about Ted and how you can read his blog and Ted has this fantastic video that's about five minutes that kind of nails just everything beautiful the way that was produced black and white i love that video that you have out there thank you and obviously take a look at some of his books and we'll be looking forward for the new ones can i leave the audience with two things please do okay now you covered most of the things i usually leave the audience with about relations about communities that's all right but there's two things that are really important to me this year and i think they go a little bit towards what you were saying about businesses should do so i think it's a good thing to close with number one i mentioned briefly i'm desperate to get companies to start thinking and creating a mindset of matchmaking versus targeting. And I think this is important because number one is I believe mindset. Attitude, perspective leads to mindset. And I think mindset, when you think about matchmaking, words are very important. So to start using that word instead of targeting. The other thing is because things are so transparent now, it used to be consumers didn't know they were targeted. They didn't know that word was being used. No one wants a target in their back Everyone wants a good match. And the reason I want the wording to change is I want the mindset to change. So I want brands to start thinking about that. And the second thing is customer experience has become a real buzzword the last couple of years. And and all brands are talking about how do we create a better customer experience? Because again, customers share, as we know, and that's this whole social media thing. But when they think about customer experience, they're only thinking about customer service and what is the product like and how are the consumer facing employees. The most critical thing they're forgetting, and this goes to our marketing audience, is customer experience with your marketing. 
That's where they're dropping the ball every day. The programmatic ads, the retargeting, the emails that you can't unsubscribe from that come one after another. I mean, you buy something from a company, you get 50 emails in yep. two weeks, and even when you unsubscribe, they keep coming, and then you get 20 emails trying to convince you not to unsubscribe, and then three months later, you're back on their list because there's nobody monitoring that. You have no idea the damage you're doing to your brand equity. Now, here's what's happening and what you got to start doing. No brand measures the negative effects of their marketing. They only measure the upside. So the upside you see and you go, hey, this is good. But what if the upside is a 5% lift, but the downside is a 10% loss? And that's where they're not watching. So I'm urging you guys, start thinking matchmaking versus targeting and change your mindset and start thinking about the customer experience with your marketing. And that's what I want to leave you with. That's great. And we really appreciate that wisdom. And uh, it's, uh, there's a lot there for people to digest. And I hope you're taking notes, folks, because I know I am. Thank you again for listening to Financially Speaking. Please remember, and hopefully by the time this show is released, you will be able to subscribe on Spotify and tell all your friends. I want to thank John and everybody over at Resonate Recording for all their post-production work. And remember, when it comes to saving and your future, pay yourself first. Have a good night. Have a good night.